This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about embracing the journey in a world forever changed. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Back in 2010, when my husband Nate and I lived in the Philippines for a year, we quickly got used to an experience that we'd never had before. We'd be walking down the street, buying peanuts or lumpia from a street vendor, chatting on our broken Tagalog, when whoever we were talking to would turn to me and say, I love your pointy nose. Then they'd point to Nate's nose and say, Chino, not as a question, but a fact. All my life, I've wished that my nose were a little less pointy, a little more round like Nate's. But in the Philippines, my nose was all the rage. So eventually I learned to just say thank you. You can see that Nate's part Chinese if you know to look for it, but it's not obvious. It wasn't until I met Nate's family for the first time that I understood just how Chinese he is. Nate's dad, Jack, is half Chinese, and it would be hard to mistake him for anything else. But Jack himself is the only visible evidence of that heritage. Jack's story has always fascinated me, but it wasn't until our family made a temporary move to Massachusetts this past year that I finally got to ask him about it. Hi there, uh, I'm Jack Davis. My full name is John Jefferson Davis. I'm 76 years old. I'm speaking to you from Hamilton, Massachusetts on the North Shore of Boston. And for much of my adult life, I've been a professor of theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which is a predominantly white institution, although we're becoming more globalized. And so in recent months and years, I and the seminary have been more deeply immersed in issues of uh, race, gender, and ethnicity. And perhaps some of our listeners would like to uh, think with me about such questions. I've never met anyone who talks like Jack. He's the most professorial person I've ever known. Anytime Nate and his four siblings get together, their favorite pastime is imitating their dad, who they all call Pop. In the 20 years that I've witnessed and sometimes participated in this game, it's only gotten better. Jack is an incredibly good sport about all of this teasing. My personal favorites include, life is a series of trade-offs. It's all about expectation management. What's the backstory on this salad? And best of all, this precious rare gem. Robin, I refuse. If you've been listening, then you know that we called season two of Shelter in Place Pandemic Odyssey, because when wildfires, pandemic parenting, and an overall breakdown of everything we held secure pushed us from our home in Oakland, the place where we sought refuge was in the town where Jack lives. We rented an apartment at the seminary where Jack works. Every morning and evening, we made the same four-mile commute that he did, but in reverse, so that we could drop off our kids with Nate's mom, Robin, Jack's wife, who saved us in every way possible this past year. You can hear that story in our season two episode titled The Lotus Eaters. But today's story is about Jack, and also it's bigger than Jack. It's about how what you see isn't always what you get, about how what we become has as much to do with what we've lost as what we've found. It's a story about finding our way home, not by ignoring our ancestral fractures, but by embracing them. To help me tell this story, I want to introduce you to someone who's never met Jack, but in certain ways understands his story better than I do. Hi, my name is Zara Krim, and I'm a member of the Fall 2021 Hassama Collective Cohort. 
On the surface, Jack and Zara don't have a lot in common. Jack is a 76-year-old theology professor. Zara is a 20-something who works for a podcast exploring curiosity from a queer perspective. But Zara relates a lot to Jack's story because both of them grew up in a place where they were constantly reminded that they didn't belong. I was born on February 3, 1946, in Honolulu, Hawaii. And my father had married a Chinese woman. He was a naval machinist at Pearl Harbor. And actually, one of the regrets of my later adult life was never asking my father some of the history of his own story. What brought him to Pearl Harbor? What was he doing on the day the bombs were falling? I never heard those stories. They later divorced. And he left Hawaii. His original roots were in Macon, Georgia, and he again resumed employment as a machinist at the Naval Ordnance Plant. And strange as it might seem, in the divorce, my Chinese mother wanted to keep my sister, and my father, for whatever reason, wanted to keep me as a single parent. While Jack's mom raised his sister in Los Angeles, Jack's father remarried and raised Jack as an only child in Macon, Georgia. My sister grew up in Los Angeles. We didn't really meet until my high school and college days, and we've been in the process of reconnecting just in the last 10 years. More than 50 years later, Zara would also move to Georgia, just 80 miles away from where Jack spent his childhood. I went to school in Brooklyn, New York, but my family moved to Georgia before I started kindergarten. I'm Chinese on my mother's side and Black and Native American on my father's side. I didn't really think much about my multiracial heritage at the time, but adults constantly told me what they thought I looked like. Polynesian, Indian, Filipino. Like Nate, I do have Chinese features if you look for them, but they're not very obvious. But compared to them, I was different. Growing up in the Jim Crow South as a mixed race, Caucasian Chinese person, I didn't look quite white, but I didn't look quite non-white either. Race, of course, it's a socially constructed category white privilege and white supremacy has been baked into American law from the very beginning. So over the course of time, various non-white groups have been considered white. The Irish and the Italians became white in the 19th century in the Asian Exclusion Act. It's fine for these Chinese people to build our railroads here, but becoming citizens, no way, because they're not considered white. In Loving versus Virginia, the U.S. Supreme Court finally struck down the anti-miscegenation laws here, which prohibited not only blacks and whites from marrying, but also Chinese and whites in most state jurisdictions. And I've often thought, if my father had been working in a naval shipyard in Virginia rather than Hawaii, which didn't have these anti-miscegenation laws, I would not have been conceived. Both then and now, less than 1% of Macon's population are of Asian descent. There were two separate and unequal school systems in Macon, Georgia, one for white and one for black. My father and my stepmother, neither of whom were college educated, they weren't what I would call racist as such, but they shared some of the racial attitudes of their day. But even though I was half Chinese, I was socialized as a white person so I went to the all-boys, white-only high school and graduated in 1964, 10 years after Brown versus Board of Education. 
I remember being, you know, very self-conscious frequently, both because of my physical size being small and shorter than most of the boys and feeling othered at multiple levels, being the last to be chosen during phys ed classes in middle school, but also the not constant but not infrequent questions from other kids, you know, are you Chinese or are you Japanese? I didn't look quite white, but I didn't look non-white either. Even though there's a half a century gap between their upbringings, Jack and Zara's experiences are remarkably similar. Both of them lived in parts of Georgia where the Asian and multiracial population was small. Both of them were extremely bright students who were celebrated for their academic excellence. Both of them grew up with frequent probing questions about what they were, but few people who were curious enough about who they were to listen to their complicated histories. For Zara, having a multiracial identity began to feel like a persistent pain point. I wasn't teased for being multiracial, but my identity was often a convenient excuse for people to make rude comments or insensitive jokes. When my mother would come to school to celebrate Mother's Day, my classmates would ask if I was adopted. Some of them would pull back the corners of their eyes, ask if I ate dog at home, or even say that my mother should go back to where she came from. When it was my father's turn to visit the class, my classmates would ask if other black students were my cousins or purposefully mix up our fathers. It felt like they were saying, I don't see you. I don't want to. The few times I felt brave enough to talk to my teachers, they just told me to be the bigger person. I think some of them understood that there was deep-rooted racism that encouraged those harmful attitudes, but the burden to fix it was always on me. Jack learned to sidestep those insults and probing questions by immersing himself in school. Being sort of an introverted nerd, I was basically a physics and math person going to Duke University and planning to get a PhD in physics and be an atomic scientist. When he went off to college, Jack found an identity he hadn't gone looking for. While he was at Duke, he encountered a campus ministry called InterVarsity, which expanded his scientific understanding of the world to include a spiritual one, too. My undergraduate background was not religion or theology. I think if I didn't believe the resurrection was true, I would be an atheist or a Buddhist. I would have to believe that actually the laws of physics and chemistry, the second law of thermodynamics and entropy, are the ultimate arbiters of truth and of the final and only truth. Jack was hired as a theology and ethics professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and that blend of science and religion has made him a great teacher. 46 years later, he's still there. I tell some of my students that in terms of truth, it's very helpful, A, to know your Bible, B, to know American history, and C, to be scientifically literate. There are scientific facts about how the world works. There are historical facts about what actually happened in the history of what is now called the United States of America. Whose version of history? Which voices are we listening to? If I come to grips, not with some mythologized version of my past, but with my real history, acknowledging I have profited indirectly by the unjust actions of my predecessors, the exploitation of black and Native American people, I will be better off spiritually. 
I do believe as a Christian that God views me not simply as an independent individual, but also as part of a culture and a society, and that I have an obligation to care for my neighbors and for my fellow citizens and try to do what I can to level a playing field that has been unlevel for the last 400 years. I didn't have sort of a racial awakening until much later, beginning in college, but even more recently, I'd say in the last 10 years. I can really identify, I think, with a lot of seminary students, especially second-generation Korean and Chinese students who come to study with us who are trying to figure out their identity and their histories. I can't speak a word of Chinese. The irony is that one of my daughters, Elizabeth, was fluent in Mandarin, so she is reconnected with that piece of the family ethnic heritage that I'm only partly connected with. This partial connection that Jack feels is what Zara calls ancestral fractures. When something gets fragmented, it can be discouraging to piece things back together on your own. This happens in so many ways. The death of loved ones, the reduction or destruction of a homeland, the absence of hereditary history or common language, forced separation from family and community members. That metaphorical and physical disjointedness leaves us with questions and no way to get answers. It's the feeling that comes when you've missed the opportunity to learn about your history and connect with the people who came before you. It's what Jack feels when he thinks about the questions he never asked his dad about his time at Pearl Harbor. It's the depth of relationship and cultural connection that he never got to have with his mom before she died, or even with his sister, who's a country away in LA. Ancestral fractures represent incompleteness. Like Jack, I didn't have the opportunity to ask my grandparents about their stories. On one end, we had a language barrier because I didn't speak Chinese. And on the other, we didn't share enough time together before they passed away. Without having an assured history recall, it's hard to feel like a complete member of our respective cultures. Zara has spent a lot of time thinking about how to heal fractures on both sides of the family. For my senior thesis, I spent a month archiving the oral histories of my matrilineal and patrilineal lines of my family. I had to challenge what we consider canonized history, like census reports, DNA tests, and other historical documents. Deciding to write a thesis that centered ancestral trauma was heartbreaking especially when I realized that I needed to name the specific disconnect I was feeling from departed loved ones and their departure deeply affected how I saw myself. I spent all four years of school on various executive and organizing boards for student identity groups. I was a student athlete, had a work-study job, the vice president of the Asian Students Alliance, and the president of the Mixed and Biracial Students Alliance. I loved fostering a community with my friends, but despite the nuanced discussions I would lead and the movements I initiated within the school's athletic department, it still wasn't enough. I was being asked why I was more involved with some groups over another, as if I prioritized one identity over others, and it really rotted my enthusiasm. I didn't want to write my thesis about myself. It's one thing to share pieces of myself with people I know and trust, but I felt like I was revealing and exploiting my identity for the sake of a story. My advisors reframed my thinking. It wasn't my job to make people understand my story, but only I could give permission for people to read my whole story, why I see the world the way I do. Once I internalized that, I gave myself permission to care less about disingenuous conversations focused on pinning down my background, when there were others who did see my multiracial identity, but it wasn't the only thing they saw. Healing my ancestral fractures is more than revealing the lines of my history. It's about preserving the people who tell it. For both Jack and Zara, listening and learning the histories outside of them has been just as important as learning to tell their own. 
being an empathetic listener is probably one of the most important skills you can have as a religious leader or pastor. If you cannot listen, you're not going to be very helpful in terms of the spiritual growth of the people in your flock. A lot of our theological students are trained how to speak, how to talk, how to teach, how to preach, but not how to listen. In a friendship, in a marriage, or a family, or a church, or an NGO, listening is just a hugely important leadership qualification. I teach a course in comparative religion, and of course Judaism is a piece of that, and I've remembered a statement, I think, by a Hasidic rab, saying, well, look, a good rabbi is willing to learn from even the most poorly educated Jew. You have something to learn. And of course, in the rabbinic tradition, it's very text-oriented, very high education standards and so forth, but the humility to actually listen to the person that you're talking to can be very interesting. It's just a good way to grow. Zara experienced this firsthand, not in the classroom, but with an Uber driver. It was November break and I was running late to the train station. I got into the car and the driver immediately asked me where I was from. I felt that familiar pang of exhaustion that I experienced a lot during school. I said I was from Florida, not the answer he was seeking, but it didn't deter him. He said that my school was outside of his usual route, but he picked me up because of my name. My driver told me that Zara was a common name in West Asia and in North Africa, where he was from. I felt bad telling him that I wasn't actually from either area. But then he said, that's okay. He told me that his family had lived in this area because it was a sanctuary city, a city that protects people from being deported illegally. He talked about how isolating it was to be somewhere new and not see anyone who shared your origins, or to be asked probing questions, or to just be ignored. He said that he usually avoided picking up college students because they could be rude or worse, silent. It was rare that he met someone who was genuinely interested in his story. At the end of the ride, my driver asked me if I knew what my name meant. I told him I know my name is Swahili and it means flower or flowering. But my driver knew my name is Arabic and in that language it does mean blossom but it also means bright. He said that it fit. I was the first student to be interested in and actively listened to his story. That made his day a little brighter. When he said my name in Arabic, he said it in a way that was familiar to him, but new to me. When I hear people say my name differently than the way I say it, it normally triggers memories of people mutilating how they say Zara, no matter how many times I correct them. But this situation wasn't humiliating or degrading. Actually, it was okay. My driver was seeing a different version of me. He took my fragmented identity and sewed in another, different meaning of my already complicated name and for once, I didn't want to rip out the seams. Being encouraged to talk to someone who actually wants to listen doesn't only create a safe space. It preserves an enthusiastic history, not just for ourselves, but for future generations. In her conversation with Krista Tippett on the podcast On Being, Ruby Sales said, We live in a very diverse world, and to talk about what it means to be humans is to talk with the simultaneous tongue of universality and particularities. So as a Black person, to talk about what it means is to talk about my experience as an African-American person, but also to talk about my experience that transcends being an African-American to the universal experience. So I think we've got to stop speaking about humanity as if it's monolithic. We've got to wrap our consciousness around a world where people bring to the world vastly different histories and experiences. But at the same time, a world where we experience grief and love in some of the same ways. So how do we develop theologies that weave together the I with the we 
and the we with the I. My own racial consciousness and connection to my Chinese ancestry has sort of been a late awakening, but I'd say it's been a good and interesting awakening. The student government put on a lunchtime forum at, at seminary in which several African-American students, Latino students, were telling about their experiences both on campus and in surrounding communities. To hear their stories was part of my education process. People who live in Massachusetts like to think of themselves as being very progressive, but being followed in a store, because it's assumed if you're black, you're going to be stealing something. Some of the words and slurs were just appalling and very hurtful. Jack started having conversations with his colleagues, people that he'd never realized were having such a different experience from him. I realize now that there were certain things about being a black scholar in a predominantly white evangelical institution living in a town, Hamilton, Massachusetts, which is at least 98% white. You know, they're sharing with me some of their experiences. That was part of my education process. Healing my ancestral fractures is more than revealing the lines of my history. It's about preserving the people who tell it. As we were working on this episode, Zara pointed out that by preserving a bit of Jack's story, I'm offering my own kids a path to their Chinese ancestry. When Zara listened to that Uber driver tell his story, she gave him a path back to his own history in North Africa. When Jack listened to his colleagues who'd experienced racism inside and outside of the seminary, it gave them a path to walk through their own wounds. But it also began to change Jack, not just as a part Chinese man, but as an American and even as a Christian. Sincere people have sometimes got it wrong in terms of what the Bible was trying to teach or what it wasn't. We're talking about what philosophers would call epistemic humility. And I think that's oftentimes in short supply. As an academic, sometimes the most important thing that happens to me in a day is a book or an article that I have read. James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, and the Black Liberation Theology has shown me that the white evangelical version of the gospel and the Christian story is not the whole story. The sort of Jesus and Bible orientation needs to recover the pieces of the gospel preserved in the black church of America. There's a lot about American racial history which is not understood in my community. What I've been reading the last five years has changed my perception of race, and I realize that my own understanding of American history has been very skewed and selective. What the Color of Other Sons, the book by Isabel Wilkerson, has done for me is to give me not just the voices, but the inner feelings of people that I have never met, who I do not meet in my predominantly white eastern Massachusetts town. She's done hundreds of first-person interviews and followed their lives as they migrated from the Jim Crow South, beginning around the First World War, through about 1970. One of the great internal migrations of human history. I've been reading more in terms of critical race theory and so forth, and I think not just white evangelicals, but probably Americans in general, who think they know a lot about race, jump from Abraham Lincoln in the Emancipation Proclamation to Martin Luther King in the Civil Rights and don't really know what was happening before Rosa Parks and Brown versus Board of Education, what was going on under Reconstruction, especially Jim Crow. That's very important history, which is continuing to misshape our segregated society today. I've realized that some of my more conservative Christian friends tend to get very defensive about this history. 
I'm finding that even to raise the question of reparations here introduces guilt-induced defensiveness, not just white fragility, but defensiveness. So I would want to frame the question of reparations strictly in a matter of guilt. Let's talk about generosity. Let's talk about love of neighbor and who is my neighbor. I think I should be willing to pay more taxes to try to do what I can to level the playing field in order to have better education, better health care, better access to housing for all people out of a generosity and love of neighbor. Zara hasn't found a theology in the church like Jack, but Zara understands deeply what it means to define a new theology, one that accounts for all of us and our complicated histories and ancestral fractures. You could call it a theology of listening. We can't resurrect the people we've lost or recover documents that are irreparably damaged, but we can tell stories. The people in our lives right now still have invaluable stories to share and ways to listen. You just have to be willing to pull out a recording device, sit down, and have a conversation. Ancestral fractures do mend. They might not be completely healed at the same time we heal, but sharing our history start the process. We contain so many versions of ourselves, some of them more fully realized than others. But when we walk with others and speak with them before they're gone, we become large. We learn to listen. I've always remembered something that David Brooks, one of my favorite columnists, said years ago, and he said, look, if you really want to draw people to your movement, the best way to do that is not to preach at them or try to argue with them, but to build a community whose way of life they find attractive. And historians tell me that that's why the early Jesus movement grew. It wasn't through politics. It wasn't through programs. It wasn't through money. It actually wasn't through dynamic public preachers. It was building powerful communities, and early Christians felt that there was a supernatural presence. You could feel it in the air, okay, that they could not get elsewhere. The message of Jesus was change your life, change your way of thinking. God wants to rebuild a just community where truth is told, where the poor are cared for, where people aren't put into prison here unjustly where people care for widows and migrants and the governing authorities, the politicians, are people of good character. It's a just social order. We should concentrate on being better followers of Jesus, focused on forming communities where we tell the truth, where we keep our promises, where we care for each other, and where we love our neighbors. For Zara, developing a theology that weaves together love of our neighbors with experiencing each other's histories, with the understanding that what we appear is not all that we are, has taken on the very simple, quiet form of presence, of listening, not to all of the voices outside of her, but within the walls of her grandparents' New York apartment. There are countless pictures of tiny Zara sitting in my grandfather's lap, and even though our language barrier meant we didn't talk about much, I remember feeling safe and loved. Even if there was nothing to say, there was always sound. A part of me being Chinese is the noise. My language has up to nine different tones. My grandmother was attached to a portable radio that spouted daily news, and there's always a sharp hiss of something being steamed. Every evening, children's brazen laughter would harmonize with the sigh of buses lumbering across the street. When I outgrew my grandfather's lap, I sat on the couch. I used to resent that space between us so much. 
Ever since I was a kid, I would wonder what my life would have been like if we stayed up north. Maybe we could have crossed the language gap between us for good. Even though I can say I love you over the phone, I miss being with them. An ancestral fracture isn't a complete break. Just like a skeletal fracture, you have to be okay with staying still wherever you are right now. Every time I see my grandparents, they ask if I've eaten yet and squeeze my hand as if they're reminding themselves what it feels like to hold me again. When they look at me, they don't just see me as I am now. They see me at 18, at 13, at 8, all sitting in the same spot on the couch. My grandparents and I can't say much to each other anymore. Their memory is starting to fade and sometimes it's too painful to stay awake. These days, we just sit, but we're sitting with love and soft songs seeping from my grandmother's portable radio in the other room. We can't speak the same language, but we belong together. Whether you've been with us from the very beginning or you're just tuning in, I want to say thank you to each and every one of you who's joined us on this journey and encouraged us along the way. You are the reason that we're still here. You know that we are doing this because we love it, but we haven't been able to make a whole lot of money at it yet. That's changing, but we need your help. We're having a lot of exciting conversations with people who can help us fund this work, but so much comes down to downloads. We're setting a goal of reaching 10,000 downloads per month by the end of 2021. And here's where you can help us. Think about anyone in your life who would enjoy this podcast. Ask them if they'd be willing to take two minutes and listen to our season three trailer. If they like what they hear, ask them if they'll subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and anywhere else that they listen. That action alone of listening to our trailer and subscribing to the show helps us get toward our goal. As always, if you listen to the very end of the episode, you'll hear Shelter in Place outtakes, our little Easter egg to thank you for sticking around. But first, I want to let you know about the Kasama Lab, our online self-paced version of our Kasama Collective Training Program, which we're offering for the first time this January. Spots are limited and we'll close the shopping cart on January 15th, so head to shelterinplacepodcast.org for details. Zara Krim was our lead writer for this episode. Nikki Schaefer was our assistant producer. Nathan Wizard was our assistant audio editor. Nate Davis is our creative director. Sarah Edgel is our design director. And our amazing season three Kasama Collective trainees are Bethany Hawkins, Hannah Fowler, Meridian Waters, Nathan Wizard, Nikki Schaefer, and Zara Krim. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis. And now, if you're still listening, here's a little outtake. So, uh, you asked me to uh, record a few thoughts about my my life here for the podcast. And uh, one thing that I've been spending a lot of uh, deliberate time reflecting on recently has been the fact that uh, next year I will have been married to my wife, uh, Robin, for 50 years. And that is very clearly a, a great deal of time. Uh, the larger portion of my life, actually, if you do the numbers. Uh, I have a little bit of advice. Uh, life is a series of trade-offs. Oh, uh, you know, uh, the thing about becoming a parent is it's all about expectation management. Oh, uh, I think an analogy to quantum physics is appropriate because if you 
Look at the universe on the smallest scale. Oh, it's really totally unpredictable. So, uh, you know, becoming a parent is somewhat like the absurdity of the universe. Many times over the years uh, have asked me, you know, what has uh, helped your marriage be successful in the long run? And of course, I have to say a strong shared faith is a cornerstone of a, any good relationship, but also delegation. Uh, in our relationship, Robin deals with animate objects and I deal with inanimate objects. Uh, you know, over all the years, we've delegated various tasks. For instance, you know, I've been in charge of the big decisions and Robin is in charge of the small decisions. And over 50 years of marriage, I can say that it's been all small decisions. <laughs> Monopoly, well, uh, it's Rick to the businessman, and I'm just a humble theologian.